Hi, my name's Tina Waldron. Welcome to the podcast. Every week I look to interview someone that can help you share your faith naturally with the world around you. In 2023, I'm going to be interviewing people in Australia, also a few from overseas, and then there'll be a few weeks that I'll jump on myself and actually do a little bit of recording with some information that may help. If you're looking to do some coaching and evangelism or as a female in ministry or an online course this year in personal evangelism, please check out our website, evangelisminaustralia.com. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to the Win-Win Evangelism Podcast. My name's Tina Waldron from Evangelism in Australia and today I'm speaking with Dr. James Chung about why revival matters. Welcome to you, James. Ah, thanks for having me. Fantastic to have someone here from the US. Um, James is actually the national leader for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in the US, leading strategy and innovation. I'm very excited to have him on. He's also ordained with the Vineyard Churches in the US and has written many books, which is where I first met James by reading one of his books. His latest book is called Longing for Revival, and that's why I want to talk about why revival matters. His work is also featured in Christianity Today, Leadership Journal, Outreach Magazine and and many more. So that's just naming a few. So longing for revival, I absolutely love it. But James, you haven't always been a person that's been for revival or convinced about revival. Tell us a little bit about that yourself. What's your background and your history with this word revival? Yes, you are adding me there. That is, it's because I grew up in a Korean American uh, church setting up in Seattle, uh, in a suburb of Seattle. And if any kind of Korean American church setting, the conversation around revival, everything's revival. Everything is always revival. It's a, anything outside of a Sunday service is revival. So if you get a guest speaker, that's a revival meeting. If you go on a retreat, that's a revival meeting. Everything's revival. So uh, you can grow up a little bit jaded, a little bit feeling like every time they're using that word, they're trying to stir you up, like, you know, at its at its worst, it's like m- emotional manipulation. And so I grew up with a pretty negative picture of that word. Uh, and so much so, my first ever external speaking engagement was on why we should not seek revival. Like, this is the irony of it. Uh, we shouldn't seek revival. We should just remain faithful because the king of the kingdom's already here, right? And so let's stop seeking revival. I just, I, was, I hated the term that much. You can hear it. There's much repentance that has needed to be done since those days. <laughs> yeah, well, it is interesting because it is a big word that is thrown around. Now, the thing that interested me about having you on the show, James, was that consistently for decades, you have been about championing and seeing people through InterVarsity ultimately, bottom line, meet Jesus, come to faith. Um, So let me just backtrack and tell us a little bit about the work that you do with InterVarsity, because many people that may be listening today wouldn't know who InterVarsity are, but tell us about your work you do there and how they actually do reach people for Christ. Sure, sure. InterVarsity USA uh, is part of uh, a larger organization called the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, which reaches about half a million students in about, I believe, 170 countries around the world. Um, and University USA, we're not even the largest movement. Um, there are other movements around the world that are that are bigger than us. But uh, we serve on campuses throughout the country. 
and what what we do, I believe it's about 690 campuses throughout the country where we're really trying to help students and graduate students and faculty go from skeptic to seekers to become kingdom world changers. And we we are a movement that seeks to change, you know, help people have their lives changed by Jesus, to see the campuses renewed, um, and to see world changers developed in his name. Incredible. It's an incredible movement. And I've had the pleasure of being connected to people when I've been um, in the US myself and just through through the work there. So this is interesting. So that's what InterVarsity do, and you've been a major front uh, with that movement in the US. Now, we talk about revival. I've been a part of leadership, too. Major field. Yes. We talk about revival, and sometimes we think revival means people coming to faith. But, in fact, revival is more about believers being revived or or let's talk about you came up with a new definition for revival tell us what that is and and why does that even matter ultimately we're talking about people coming to faith well it's because it's such a huge word it's a loaded word yeah people are rarely neutral about the word revival that for some you mentioned that word and there's an excitement there's a palpable hunger that rises up in folks particularly if uh, they've been through revival they, you know, they want to see that happen again. And at, at the same time, there are others, they hear that word and they, like me, have an allergic reaction to the word. And I, given all the ways that it's such a loaded word, um, you start digging and you find that there's lots of different definitions about revival, uh, where people talk about it either as a personal revival or renewal, something where you come alive as, as a person of faith, or it has to, you know, revival is only revival if it's part of this broad social movement and there's this huge amount of fruit that's happening on the on a national or global scale only then do you consider it revival you know so there's such a a large spectrum there that we wanted to figure out a way to talk about revival in, in a way that you know, makes sense to the rest of us like what what is revival for the rest of us how how do we look at that and so um and especially if we felt like we had something that would work within university culture um, which tends to be our, our joke about ourselves is that we're nerdy, wordy, and a little bit dirty, <laughs> meaning subversive, not unholy <laughs> per se, but wordy, nerdy, a little bit dirty. And so in that way, if we had a definition that could work for us, maybe it could work for a lot more people of faith um, in a way that could be helpful for them. And so we came up with something, uh, and each line would, could be unpacked quite a bit, but our definition is a season of breakthrough, a season of breakthroughs in word, deed, and power that usher in a new normal of kingdom experience and fruitfulness. And you can hear there's notes in that in each line, but that that's our definition. And it's been very, very helpful for us as we think about revival around us. Yeah, it, it's, it's a great take on it. Or I mean, it's, you're a great teacher. So what I love about it is that it, that comes to the forefront. It comes to the forefront and I go, mm, okay, let's, un, let's, let's talk about that. So, Let's talk about it. Let's talk about those lines. Can you mm-hmm. can you explain to me each of those in a nutshell of what they mean? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a season of breakthroughs. We wanted it not to just be one event that's pointed at revival. Um, sometimes we do that like, oh, yeah, that one time when they met in Korea, uh, and, and that, that's when the Korean revivals happened at the turn of the 20th century. 
But, uh, you know, it, there's a lot of things that flow into that space and a lot of things that happen after that space. And that's what we call revival. Uh, even in the scriptures then, with that definition, if we're saying it's a season of breakthroughs instead of one event, then we're actually saying that, like in Acts per se, you could be tempted to say that at Pentecost, that was a revival, that time when Peter was preaching and 3,000 were added. Um, but in that definition then, you say, well, Acts 2 is a part of that, but then that leads to Acts 3 when you're seeing the healing happen. And that leads to Acts 4, you know, it leads to these places where then Acts 5, where there's um, uh, discipline in the church, or Acts 6, where there's a, a giving over of leadership to more marginalized communities. You just you'll see the unfolding of God's move. And it's that whole season then that we call a season of breakthrough. Um, and that season of breakthrough then connects with that third line, uh, which ushers in a new normal. That you have enough breakthrough that happened, and it's not just a one-time event that actually then gets you to the point where you have an expectancy for something more. That if you're in a community of faith where you see like nobody come to faith in a year, that sets a certain level of expectancy. If then that church begins to see lots of people become Christian, let's say. They're giving their lives to Jesus. You're seeing life transformation. And let's say that's happening on the level of like 100 people a year, maybe like 10 a month or so. That sets a different level of expectation that if you went back down to people not coming to faith, you'd start to ask questions. Um, and that's, that is that level of expectancy. And in revival, that level of expectancy really shoots up. It's not a demand that God has to show up in a particular expectation, but your your expectancy rises that God can do more. And that that's why people who've been through a revival are are so ruined by their experience in revival because they actually think God can move like that. <laughs> and they go, why don't we ask God to move like that again? And people who haven't experienced revival or don't have a vision for it, they can't understand why those folks who've been through it are so... Um, like a dog on a bone. They, they get really adamant about wanting to see revival again because they've been ruined by it. They've seen God move like this before. So that's the, the new normal. Yeah. So uh, it's a season of breakthroughs in word, deed, and power. That second line is just to give you the sense of uh, the quality of that revival, that it isn't just word. It isn't just deed, uh, compassion and justice. It isn't just power. But somehow uh, we see in Romans 15 that Paul talks about um, the word fully proclaimed. That could be a geographic full of fully proclaimed, but it also gave you a sense of the quality of the full proclamation. And in that passage, he talks about word and deed and power um, and how that's the full proclamation of the gospel. That's where we were getting that. And we see that in history, revival might start in one circle, but starts to move to the word, the center as it matures. Um, the Pentecostal movement, for instance, right, starts in this power circle with some deeds since there was like black and white, uh, a mix of ethnicities in 1906, which was unheard of. They're praying together. Um, and you could see that uh, you know, there's some factors. There's a lot of things that happened in the Pentecostal movement, but there was an attempt to go from that power to continue to, at least in some places, to see more of the, the integration, the justice happening, uh, the reconciliation between ethnic groups, as well as uh, Seymour, William Seymour, wanting more like the word, more wanting more places where the scripture was involved. The history is you know, not a perfect one, but you do get a sense that as they mature, there's an attempt, it might start somewhere, and then it sort of goes to the middle. And that's, we just wanted to have a place for everybody um, to have a place in revival, 
for word, deed, and power. And then the last line, the so it's a season of breakthroughs in word, deed, and power that usher in a new normal of kingdom experience and fruitfulness. That experience, internal, and fruitfulness, external. We felt like we really needed to hold together because this is like, it's almost obvious. It, 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 when we came up with this insight, we were like, oh my gosh, that's so obvious. People are going to hate us when we say this. But, um, you know, no revival happens without revived people. Hmm. Right? And, and all revival starts small. <laughs> you know, so it, it's this very fascinating thing where people want the big thing. But it's like, do you have a Methodist revival without John Wesley having his heart strangely warmed? And then he like hangs out with 30 others and they, in the middle of the night, they have this experience of God in prayer. Like it starts in these smaller settings and then kind of keeps going. And we didn't want to take away the personal experience of revival and try to divorce that from the social, more like broad movement of revival. And we wanted to hold that together because one fuels the other. It's the, it's the whole British evangelist, Gypsy Smith, where he says, when he was asked how to, how to prepare or start revival, and he said, and I'm paraphrasing, because it's a great quote if you find it, but he basically said, go into a room, close the door, draw a chalk circle around yourself, and ask God to start revival within that circle. And that, I think that's a key part of us then preparing in our hearts to be people who are renewed, who are revived, so that we might be able to see revival flowing out around us. Right. Yeah, this is the big discussion. And it's my holy discontent when people use the word revival. If we're going to use the word, it has to overflow. It has to somehow be connected to people coming to faith. And that is always, let me not say always, but James, we see that flow through a believer. It's people being revived, believers being revived, excited about Jesus, renewed in their faith, that then it bubbles over to the world around them. Mm -hmm. And so I love that, that you have in your book articulated that this, this connection, that you can't just talk about revival as in God breaking out in a community or breaking out in a, and devoid it from an individual believer because they are strongly connected. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. We, we wanted to have some that, that experience of the internal and how that flows over. And particularly to people who don't yet know Jesus, there is a study, I believe it was Willow Creek's reveal study that just showed that the most effective witnesses are those who are more mature, right? The ones who, and you, those who are lit up by revival have a contagious kind of faith. When there's a renewed person, has something about them. <laughs> well, it's, it's the spirit doing something powerful. And we don't think then revival was meant just for us to feel better about God. There was something about that that will then is meant to spill over. That's sort of how it's all been designed. And for those who don't yet know Jesus to get to know him through the witnesses of revived people. So and then and then that has its own overflow, right? Like a moment becomes a movement. There's ways that when people become Christian and then they are, you know, if if there's ways that they're being discipled well and led well, they can then help other people, their friends who didn't know Jesus, get to know them through the ways that they're experiencing God for the first time. It happens that way. In America, when you talk to people over over 65 or so, over 70 um, Christian leaders, and you sort of ask them, when was a, like a great time to be a Christian? You know, 
in in this in our country and so many of them you know i want to say like nine out of ten folks will say the jesus movement um 70s late 60s 70s um that they point back to that time and everyone's got a story of being in like a coffee shop and they just started talking and the whole coffee shop becomes interested in jesus you know everyone has a coffee shop story i'm still trying to figure out why it's a coffee shop story but there was such a spiritual openness in that season and particularly from people from the margins right like uh the communities that basically most churches would sort of turn their nose to but those who are kind of dealing uh they were in the drug subculture or they were in some other subculture that normally wouldn't darken the doors of a church but during that jesus movement a lot of those folks were the ones that were um being transformed by the power of god and that was having incredible spillover effects. I, I just think revivals will get messy and they're not gonna just stay, if, if sort of as they mature, they're not just gonna stay within our church walls. Yes. And they're not meant to. Well, that is the point, they're not meant to. So look, I'm just putting on my skeptical hat, but I'm a bit skeptical when people say, oh, we're having a revival. I'm like, are you? I said, that's great. Is it overflowing because my understanding is it should be God is reviving the church, reviving on an individual level a person that they would love him more, that they would love the world that he came for. So I get a bit skeptical myself when that word gets thrown around, James. That's right. And yeah, that's it, it, that's where it can often be used to talk about an emotion we're feeling or sort of a renewal within a community. And so that's why we have our definition. On the one hand, yeah, we don't want it to stay there. And there's a, a easy judgment or, or criticism that can come up with us, or you're skept, you, you call it skepticism, that, that's there too. At the same time, wouldn't want to sit here cross-armed and saying like, that stuff doesn't matter either. That's why we're trying to make that connection, that a community being revived and a community sensing something God doing in their midst, it's the beginning. Um, let's just not let it stay within the church walls. It's It was meant to be fruitful beyond. It's not just meant for experience within. So is, is that then become a matter of stewardship or or leading revival? If, if you're a person that's involved in, say, revival that you're seeing break out in a church, then it becomes a matter of how do we steward that? And is that what you're saying? That's right. I think you can you can prepare, you can experience, and you can lead it. That's sort of what we're trying to say, why longing for revival is an important piece. We don't make revivals happen. That's God's work. But we can prepare, we can experience it, and we can lead for when it happens. So absolutely, if in a revival setting, it can turn inward. There are ways that, and I think when it does, it keeps it from where it could go. Mm. So what we talk about in, in revival in, in our book is, um, so I live in California. So I, please don't judge me, listeners. I do live in California. Um, and if you live here in Southern California, you are not a stranger to earthquakes. Just last week was a, a, a pretty decent sized earthquake that we felt uh, late into the night. Um, you're not a stranger to that. And they come in so many different ways. Some thud, some wave, some shake. Um, you sort of become a connoisseur of earthquakes when you, if, you're, if you're here in LA. What's fascinating though, right? So those are all considered earthquakes and the strength of earthquakes are also measured on this thing called the Richter scale, an exponential graph that, you know, a 10.0 on the Richter scale can level villages and a, a 1.0 probably won't even wake you up from your sleep. But the point of that is, but they're all considered earthquakes. And so when we think about revival, 
whether it's happening it personally, whether it's happening at a communal level, whether it's happening at a, a national level or a global level, we just want to say that all of that counts. All of that, all of that is revival. But maybe it's a level one, maybe it's a personal one. And it's like waiting to go to level two because you haven't yet shared what's happening with you with others. Um, and at level two, it's at a communal space and you're just waiting. God might be waiting for you to share this beyond the church wall so that other people who don't yet know Jesus might get to hear it. And that moves to a regional level, right? And then at a regional level, maybe it's just waiting for more people to pray into that and to keep sharing what's happening and letting um, God move with, again, people who don't yet know him, I think is a big part of that. Um, and it moves to a, uh, like from a regional to a national level. And then once it hits national, it usually goes global. That we see in history, that seems to go really fast once it hits that. Um, but there's a way that we can we can either get in the way of it, or maybe the other way, the more precise way to talk about that is revival just goes around us. They it goes somewhere else. <laughs> um, Bobby Clinton talks about how the Spirit of God um, sort of works with an institution that wants to work with God and His kingdom, and when it fails to do that, it, the Spirit moves to the next institution. You know, and I do think that that's there. We can be a part of it, and we can shepherd it, hmm. um, or we can let it pass us by. And God never forces us into this. Yeah, He's always trying to woo us, but He never forces it. And so, yeah, I think that's right. It, it's sort of key for then shepherds or leaders to pay attention. What is God doing in our midst? And if it is a move of renewal, to find out ways to keep, like, to be in line with what God is doing rather than get in the way. Yeah. Okay, so that really begs a really big question for me then because, yeah, I love Bobby Clinton's work as well. I love his comments on the Spirit of God moving. So what do we do to get in the way? What, what are some of the things that we, we can do to get in the way, to, to, to block a, a move of God, a revival coming? What, what are the things that we can do that we do or we don't know that we do them, but we do them? Oh, there's a lot of answers here. I think I want to answer it in terms of it, it is a posture of the heart that what each of us can do and what communities can do. And will we sit here when a move of God is happening? I'm not saying that everything that happens in your community is a move of God, even if it's exciting. But for those who are in leadership, I think that is the task is to discern what God is doing in the midst. And once you sense a, a movement of God in the midst, are you are, are you going to stop it? Are you going to criticize it? Are you going to consume it? Or are you going to help be a co-creator alongside it mm. and to sort of give it space? Mm. Um, I'm thinking of Andy Crouch's book, Culture Making, where he talks about, I believe it's five C's, and I shouldn't bring it up without knowing what those five C's are, but you could critique, consume, condemn. There's a couple more C's of, of the posture you could take toward, in his framework culture. Um, and his his in, invitation is to create, to create with it. Uh, I think that's great. Let's. There are ways that we can condemn, consume, critique, copy, do things that aren't going to be helpful in revival. Whereas if we sort of more take back and go like, okay, God, what are you doing? And what? how do you want me to respond? I think we'll be in a better place to not quench what is happening and to move forward in it. Yeah, what well, just fantastic stuff. And in the show notes, I'm going to drop all the links to uh, stay connected with James, particularly this recent book that has come out. 
um, and other things that we've mentioned today so that you can connect with that. I love the fact that you called it longing for revival because there's an assumption that that is needed corporately but individually and there's an, also an assumption that the world needs revival to be taking place in the church for the world to know who Christ is. That's right. In Psalm 85, that's a prayer of the church. Will you not revive us again so your people may rejoice in you? And that's the prayer for revival is is in our scriptures. It's in our prayer book of, of the Psalms. And it's a it's a part of us learning how in relation to God to have a greater expectancy Right, a greater sense that God can do these things while also killing our expectations about what God should do for us. And so in that way, we we are posturing ourselves then in a place of dependence and openness and hope that God can actually break through in an anxious and troubled time. And uh, it, you know, and history shows and God tends to break through in anxious and troubled times, right? That's precisely the times when God seems to show up. And so in those powerful ways. And so that's the longing for revival, I do think is a, a key part for us to remain at people of hope in a tough time. Yeah, absolutely. Did you think that the pandemic was helpful for revival? There's so much to grieve and there was so much loss in the pandemic. It's It's hard to just blanket say thank you for it. But it the pandemic also has had a way of exposing our idols and showing us what we depended on and forcing us to see new ways of depending on God or doing church or figuring out how to be a community of faith that I think it is the shakeup we may have needed. Uh, and so it's not that I thank God for the pandemic, that I think that would be so I'm not sure I could be at that level, but I am at the place where, but there's a lot of this that I think God might be using and a lot of it could be redeemed. And if we don't fight it or we don't just try to go back to the way things were, but let it be the thing that teaches us to seek a, a, the new thing that God might be doing. It is a place where it, because of the constraints, it's a place where God can have a lot of creativity. And that's how artists work. You need to give them constraints for greater creativity. I, I'm hopeful for that. And I'm hopeful that the pandemic has forced us into new ways of thinking and living that may actually help us long for revival all the more. Mm, yeah, fantastic. Well, this has been the most wonderful discussion. Thanks, James. Really appreciate your time. Um, as I said, I'm going to drop everything into our show notes that, so that people can stay connected. And I want to encourage you today to it, take a listen, take a read uh, to James's new book, Longing for Revival. It's absolutely extraordinary. And it's it's a take and it's, a, it's thinking from a different perspective. And I just love that. It's not your, it, it's just very, very rich. So I want to thank you so much for for the time in, in co-authoring that book and yeah, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to add, James? You're thinking, oh, Dina, I should have said this. Let me say that today about revival. <laughs> uh, that's always the million-dollar question at the end. And uh, I do think it. Uh, the main thing, the takeaway being, it's to continue to, to as, as we talk about, to kill expectations, raise expectancy. Just to keep saying, like, yeah, the pandemic definitely exposed our expectations, 
what if, would it look like if we just kill those expectations? Like, God, you have to show up this way to be good to us or our community. We laid that down and then said, God, okay, but what else do you want to do? I, I just wonder if that, that would open up some new things for us. And my hope is that God will, will continue to do what he's always going to do into Revelation, that he's making all things new. But uh, it's been great being with you, Tina, and uh, it's great to be on this podcast. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I trust it's been helpful for you. Don't forget to check out onmissionwithgod.com. Love to see you in the course this year. Have a great week and see you next time.